Welcome to Unsafe Space. You're watching Dangerous Talks with me, Carter Laren. This is a series we do Wednesday evening, mostly every Wednesday evening, dedicated to the application of reason and individual aesthetics. Uh, these are uh, these are two really, really powerful, uh, important ideas that we that were passed down to us from from Enlightenment thinkers. They've made modern civilization uh, leaps and bounds better than any civilization before it. Um, and, you know, the West has spent most of the last few decades or over, probably over a century vilifying, um, undermining, uh, castigating, blaming, corrupting these ideas. Uh, we're kind of on a suicide mission, uh, as a culture. And that's, uh, you know, largely fueled by collectivism, irrationality, psychological dysfunction. And on this show, what we like to do is defend those those important ideas, the important ideas of the Enlightenment move, humanity forward. Uh, as I said before, not the way the progressives mean it. Um, progressivism, it sounds really good, but they don't actually mean progress. What they mean is they would like to build a massive administrative state to control you. Um, I'd actually like to move move forward, actually forward, which means proper recognition of individual rights and political liberty, commitment to, to political liberty, a commitment to reason as our primary means for survival as individuals. Okay, so on today's agenda, um, mostly I'm gonna talk about what kind of society I think we need to focus on building in order to flourish. Um, but before that, I'm gonna do a quick comment on Trump and FBI stuff because uh, it's in the news, people have been asking about it a lot. Um, and then after, we, after I talk about the main topic, I'm gonna circle back and talk about um, reason and intuition, because that's uh, and hearing some uh, discussions about that. Uh, and then I'm going to talk about uh, argumentation a little bit. Hopefully, we can all help improve our own arguments. Um, so, by the way, I I did not put this poll up uh, in chat, which the poll is: Do you work in tech? I didn't put it up because I need tech help, but maybe I should have. So. Uh, maybe I'll reach out to those of you who answered yes, let me know, and I'll maybe reach out to you afterwards. Ironically, I worked in tech for decades. Uh, so, okay. By the way, don't forget to make sure you're subscribed. On YouTube, really likes to unsubscribe people, but everywhere, make sure you subscribe, Rumble, Odyssey, everywhere else. Um, and please share this content. Maybe skip the first several minutes of this particular episode, but share this content. Um, lots of the topics on this show in particular are evergreen topics, so if you're interested in, in something that uh, you think I should have discussed or there's context that you feel like you're missing, you might want to go through the Dangerous Thoughts playlist on YouTube and see if it's been covered already. Okay, so really quickly on the Trump stuff, um, I just I don't actually want to comment too much on what's going on other than uh, to give a little bit of a background on national security and handling of classified information and that kind of stuff because I don't think, I think there's a lot of, a lot of things are muddled um on both sides of the aisle i see a lot of, of muddling and and it is confusing and complex it's more confusing than it ought to be it's not super straightforward um so for those of you who don't know uh i did in my when i was a young man a young lad much better looking young lad um i did have a top secret clearance and i did have uh sci which is a special compartmentalized clearance which is as as deep as you can go um and so I'm going to talk based on on that experience. Um, 
I'm trying to explain how, how some of this stuff works. Uh, there's a separate thing, though, other than classification systems. People like to get excited about classification, right? There's confidential, secret, top secret, and then uh, compartmentalized. Um, in addition to the classification system, there's an, there was an Espionage Act. I think it was in, like, God, 1917 or something. It's old. Uh, and I think it was last updated in the 50s or something, like, extensively. So it's still... Even the updates are old. Um, so the classification system, so, so the Espionage Act predates this classification system completely. The classification system is, is part of the executive office. It's executive branch function. So it's implemented through executive orders. So presidents make the ultimate determination on classification of materials. They can decide whether something is secret or unclassified or whatever. Um, I guess if they tried to declassify the nuclear codes, someone might complain, but theoretically they can. Um, and uh, usually the president directs uh, the, the classifying agency to do the declassification, but not always. Sometimes presidents feel like there's a need to just do it themselves. I think Bush declassified some stuff uh, about Bruce prior to 9-11 that he had been given. He just did it. He didn't ask anyone. Um, but this... The Espionage Act, because it predates the classification system, is not about the classification system at all. And it's got like really vague, broad, and sometimes ambiguous language in it. And it covers information like related to national security, which, I mean, that could be Joe Biden's breakfast cereal, right? Like, I don't know what's related to that. Like, lots of things are related to it's such, I mean, that kind of language, if you've ever done like contract law, uh, and, you, and like, if you're on a side that, that wants to be able to like, uh, have, have really broad reaching language, you use, you use language like related to blah, blah, blah. And it's like, ha, everything's related to everything. Uh, and if you're on the other side that wants it to be narrow, you recognize that kind of stuff in contract negotiations. You're like, no, 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 like related to is too broad. But the Espionage Act uses that kind of a language. It's wildly broad. broad. It's used against whistleblowers a lot. It was used against, uh, Bradley Manning, Chelsea Manning. Um, used against Edward Snowden, used against Julian Assange. Um, and like I said, it has nothing to do with whether information is classified or not. So about this stuff and you're like, well, Trump declassified this or this happened or blah, blah, blah. You got to understand the laws that, that they're using is often the Espionage Act. They're not really, they're not really going after uh, classification stuff because they're two separate. Uh, and like everything in government, it's like bloated and confusing and, you know, can be interpreted however you want. And, uh, perfect for administrators who want to use it however they want to use it. Um, <laughs> Hillary, the document had a C on it. I don't know. This is Demon Slayer in chat. So yeah, right? Uh, Hillary had, Hillary had, you know, Hillary set up a server in her house because, you know, she could. Uh, no one, no one cared. It's just, just an email. Stop talking about the emails. They're just emails. I'm sure the Secretary of State didn't have any information that was related to national security. Anyway, um, let's not get into that. So I don't, again, I don't want to comment too much on Trump's particular situation for a couple of reasons. One is I'm actually not interested enough to follow it very closely. I'm kind of tired of Trump, frankly. Uh, I think uh, I, we knew he was a populist. We knew he wasn't principled, but I hope that he would actually do some things that he just didn't do. Um, so I'm, I don't really care about Trump anymore. I get that he is the bull in the China shop, but he seemed to be a much less effective bull than I wished he was. Um, and also, I just basically don't trust 
any of the parties involved to be telling the truth. Like no one involved in this entire thing. I don't trust any of their stories. So I wouldn't, just to, to be clear, I wouldn't be surprised if Trump kept documents that he shouldn't have just because he felt like he was entitled to them. I wouldn't be surprised if other presidents normally do the same thing, no matter what they claim. I wouldn't be surprised if Trump kept documents because he thought some information would protect him from, you know, deep state stuff and he was being targeted and he was going to use it as leverage. I wouldn't be surprised if Trump kept documents just because he was sloppy. On the other hand, I wouldn't be surprised if the GSA, the Government Services Administration, mistakenly sent documents to Mar-a-Lago that they shouldn't have. I also wouldn't be surprised if it turned out the GSA intentionally sent the documents to Mar-a-Lago to entrap Trump. I wouldn't be surprised if the Justice Department has never cared about this with respect to any other president, but they're going after Trump specifically because of TDS. All that stuff wouldn't surprise me. I will say what would surprise me. I would be surprised if Trump was plotting something nefarious involving international espionage. And here's why, completely apart from his character, I don't want to make any character judgments, apart from all of that, I would be surprised. And here's why. If I were going to smuggle secrets out of the White House, or any, like a skiff or any, any security area. Uh, and I was going to use, I had like a plan to use these. I was going to, you know, sell them or trade them or whatever. I wouldn't have paper copies lying around in 15 different cardboard boxes. Uh, yesterday on Amazon, I bought a $40 thumb drive that has two terabytes on it. No, it's an unusually low price, but still. I would just have a $40 thumb drive. I would have everything on it. It would be encrypted. Maybe I'd also store that encrypted data in the cloud somewhere. Only I would have the key. The end. That would be my smuggling operation. There might be some more technical stuff I'd need to do to, to get around people noticing I was doing that, but that's the essence of what the operation would be. No one seizes that information without my permission because I have the key. I have the only one who has the key. I can travel anywhere in the world with this information and access it if I stick it online, encrypted somewhere in a, you know, stick it in a file somewhere on a torrent. Even in the 1960s, James Bond used a microdot, not boxes of paper. So this paper documents at the bottom of cardboard boxes bullshit sounds to me like bad spy drama written by Ralphie from A Christmas Story. It doesn't pass the smell test to me. That's all I'm going to say about this entire thing. All right. Uh, oh, G-Man's got a super chat. So let's pull it up. Yes, I know. I'm technically incompetent. Everything's changed now. So here we go. Uh, where is it? G-Man says, Every U.S. president should go directly to jail after leaving office. Let the elites fight amongst themselves for a while. It's their turn. I, I, I you know what? How about, G-Man, every president goes directly to jail as soon as they're elected? Um, I think. All right, let's talk about the main topic for tonight. My title on my notes here says Homesteading versus Nuclear Fusion. It's not really an accurate thing. I think the title of the show is something about uh, Randy Weaver versus George Jetson. I want to talk about homesteading as a response to the decaying culture in the United States. Um, and I'm defining homesteading kind of 
loosely as move to the country, grow your own food, become self-sufficient. Like that's a thing you see Owen Benjamin doing that. Uh, you see a lot of people talking about that thing, especially in the conservative movement, uh, some libertarians. Um, it's kind of this romanticized little, little house on the prairie thing. G-Man says I was talking about pre-crime when I wanted to. No, I mean, just getting elected probably is enough. Uh, anyway, um, so I'm, I, I, that's that's my loose definition of homes, homestead. And I want to, before I jump into it, I, there's two caveats. Personally, I actually love a more rural life. Many aspects of that lifestyle are attractive to me personally. Not so into having to maintain a vegetable garden, but other stuff I like. Um, the second point I want to make is self-sufficient, and I'll expand on this later, but self-sufficient is a self-delusion. Um, almost no one is actually willing to live the life that an actual self-sufficient lifestyle would entail. Uh, I just, I saw a few weeks ago, I saw a friend who, um, he and his dad, I don't know the name of this group they're in, but they they do this thing where they live as if it's 1850 or something for like a week at a time. Um, I don't think they go much longer than that, maybe two weeks, but not not much longer than that. Uh, and it's, I mean, it's harsh and they do it because they like it and they think it's fun and it's a challenge, but you know, they, they have to make their own clothes and like it's, they, it's not easy. It's, it's tough. It's tough to live as if, and that was 1850, that wasn't that long ago. Um, and that, you know, that can be fun. It's fun for them for a short period of time. Even then, I don't think it's fun for most people. I think if most of you, even I said, Hey, want to, you know, want to go live like it's 1850 for a couple of weeks, like actually live like that. I think you'd probably say no. Um, and even this guy, he's in it during the, the normal, the normal times, you know, when he's not living like it's 1850, he's working in it. And, you know, it's worth taking a moment to think about what you rely on, even if you are homesteading in 2022. You, I mean, and it's just some of the things you're relying on. Basic tools, like just tools to do your gardening or anything, right? Those tools require an entire mining industry, an entire fossil fuel industry, advanced machinery, everything. Your medical care. I don't know too many people that are homesteading that are like, yeah, I'll take care of my own medical care. We're going to march through the woods and find some herbs and crush them up. And if I get a toothache, I might die, right? So the entire medical industry and everything that entails, you're relying on that. Your shelter and all of its contents, entire industries there. And a lot of these homesteaders talk about it on the internet. So you're not only are you relying on the physical infrastructure of the internet, which includes advanced physics, chemical engineering, and electrical engineering, and satellite technology, and et cetera. Um, just to do the homesteading, a lot of people are like, they're relying on the knowledge base of the entire world to look up stuff that they need to look up. So homesteading, if you like it, great, have at it. Like, do the homesteading thing. Um, but don't pretend it's actual, like, a strategy to deal with societal decay. Um, if it is your strategy to deal with the decay of society, I think it's a horribly pessimistic and apocalyptic view. 
uh, that's doomed to failure. Um, on the the thumbnail for this this show today has a picture of Weaver, who was the guy from the original. He died in May of this year. He died this year. Um, but of course, you know, he lost his wife and kid. Uh, almost, I think, is the FBI uh, and actually the U.S. Marshals. Um, so the, the idea that you'll you could even be left alone is probably not true. But this this kind of I need to go survive on my own thing. Uh, you know, I'll, if 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 society collapses, we'll survive on our own in the woods uh, or just you know in the country. The level of survival you're talking about is something so primitive you probably couldn't even comprehend it. So as things like your refrigerator or your furnace or your tractor or your fence or your boots or your shovel or your teeth break or deteriorate or beyond repair or whatever, you start to slide into not just a pre-industrial society, but pre-Bronze Age. So saying that your plan to, to wait out the cultural battle, your, your plan to, to get freedom to survive, uh, involves this acceptance of a massive defeat that you're going to become a caveman for a couple of generations. It's just, it's not the best strategy. If you really think the world is going to collapse that severely, if, if you seriously think it's going to come to the point where you need to rely on being all by yourself with no electricity and like you're going to, you know, be churning butter or whatever the hell, because like if that's your thing, if you think that's what it's going to come to, your best strategy is actually to acquire massive wealth. That's your, but you'd be a billionaire because no matter what happens, Elon Musk will be fine. Massive wealth gives you mobility, gives you access. You can move, you can leave, you can hide, you can afford things. Like, if you really think that's what's going to happen, massive wealth is your answer, not going to the country and unplugging. And again, this is someone who's like, I like the country. JB says, as people die off, there will be a huge supply of advanced materials, one of the dumbest parts of walking dead is ammo shredders. There will be a supply, <laughs> but I think you are overestimating how much inventory is all that you need, right? Um, and where it and where is it? Right? So yeah, I mean. You could probably have enough ammo for the rest of your life. That's probably true. Um, but, you know, if your car breaks down, you're not going to have gasoline, by the way. Gasoline doesn't last. Uh, diesel does. But something breaks on that thing. I mean, maybe there's a part somewhere in a shop sitting around, but you have to know where it is. And But it's not going to get manufactured and shipped to you. Right? So it's not, it's, it's not. It's not that easy. Um, and I'm thinking about this in particular because, first of all, we read Fossil Future recently by Alex Epstein, which is a great reminder of how awesome technology is and how, you know, how much we rely on it. But also I was talking to my wife about the ideal life that we wanted, right? It's a good thing to do, by the way, with your spouse once in a while. Like, hey. What are our goals? What, what could we want? What do we want? If we could do anything, what would it be? Right? Even if you can't do anything, we can't do what we want uh, yet. But uh, and you know, we thought, well, we want we want to live in the country, we want a rural life because we value exposure to nature. Um, 
It gives you an appreciation for the comforts of modern life. It exposes a lot that is hidden in modern society, like how difficult it is to obtain food. You're exposed to death of livestock or whatever. And like, there's, you know, you're exposed to the harsher elements and you, you see what nature's really like. So there's a lot, there's a lot to learn there if you're raising kids. But we also kind of value the urban life because we want exposure to the massive cooperation and advancement of, of humans, the deep study of, of things, building complex technology, entrepreneurship, even art and culture, like the variety there is valuable. Um, and you don't get those things by yourself on a ranch in the middle of Wyoming. Um, now, personally, we lean more towards more towards a rural existence with maybe, you know, intentional frequent exposure to the city. So like a ranch in the country, I don't know, would have a condo and someone would visit for a few months a year, something like that, right, in the city. Uh, so that's, that's for us. Everyone's going to have their own thing. But that, that thought, um, you know, that discussion got me thinking about this community in particular. And, um, you know, I was thinking if we, if we're the representatives of enlightenment values, um, specifically values of reason and individualism, political freedom, if that's, if that's how we think of ourselves, which I think many of you do, um, then if, if that's if that's who we are, if we're representing those values, the entire re industrial revolution and all modern technology, that's ours. And I don't mean it's our birthright. I'm not saying like seize the means of production. I, I just mean um, we're the stewards of it. It's ours. We're the ones who are the intellectual heirs of that because we're the ones who are supporting the ideas necessary for that to happen, right? It's only possible to have a modern advanced society through the ideas that we promote and defend. And the way forward in the culture war is not to cede technology and science to the destroyers and to be like, well, I'm gonna check out and go live on a ranch. You guys have AI. That's not gonna go well, right? That's a recipe for, like a dystopian dark ages. You give the, the destroyers of humanity are in charge, but they're armed with tech, and the defenders of humanity are busy tending our vegetable gardens. I hate vegetable gardens if you can't tell. Um, so look, I, I, I don't think the US and its current political configuration can be saved, I've said that before, but also even if it could be saved, that's a secondary goal for me. What, the, what made the United States great was not these 50 states in this particular land. Um, it certainly wasn't this particular political configuration. We could argue that, well, the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, they did, those are political documents, they did make America special. But now we're not really all that different from most of Europe, and we're moving closer towards Europe every day politically. We, we have... We just signed into law. We've got 87,000 new IRS agents coming our way. Jack Boots disguised as accountants. Right? If the spirit of the founding fathers were alive, those people would be tarred and feathered and driven out of town. What made the U.S. superior, I'm using that word intentionally because I think it was superior. What made the U.S. superior was its ideas, right? Specifically, individual rights, priority to government, before government, not 
not something government grants you, but something government is obligated morally to recognize. Um, the idea of government, you know, instituted with the goal of protecting those rights, which is by definition a non-intrusive government, probably tiny, at the federal level ought to be quite powerless. All right, states, you know, the U.S., the way it's configured, states might be different, but. And we all know the U.S. didn't implement those ideas fully. We didn't implement them consistently. But we, and I mean this community, like literally, we can, those of us who understand those ideas and are committed to them, we, we can implement them consistently. We're not starting from scratch. I'm not saying that we could achieve perfection, but we know what the more moral path is. We know what works in the long run, which by the same thing is, you know, by the way, is the same thing as what's moral. And that's a system based on the preservation of individual sovereignty, not based on the preservation of state power. So I think, you know, we as a community need to a loudly and in every area of our lives reject this concept of public good. First of all, I'm, I'm so tired of hearing public good. I hear it all the time. Public good is an anti-concept. I've said this over and over again. I feel like a broken record, but it still has to be said. It's an anti-concept. It undermines the concept of good. It's neither public nor good. Right? Let's look at just let's look at the word public. Uh, what does public mean? In the best case, it, best case, maybe it means democracy, which is dictatorship by majority. Not everyone. Minorities are sacrificed in a democracy. The greatest minority being the individual. Right. And the worst case, the public good is like a dictatorship defined by Kim Jong-un or something. Right. And then there's a bunch of in between, in between ways to interpret public good. And that's dictatorship by representatives and unelected administrators. And both the U.S. and China fall into that category, both of them. China, by the way, the way, has the largest legislative body in the world. It's called the National People's Congress. They elect Xi. She is not a dictator. She is elected by the National People's Congress. Now, they might be appointed in whatever, like, you know, I'm not saying their elections are exactly the same as ours. Uh, and clearly he has a lot more power, but he rules at the whim of the National People's Congress. Right? I think U.S. is still better than China. But they're both in that in-between thing. They're not Kim Jong-un and they're not actually uh, like full-on democracy 51% get their way, both of which are bad, right? We're all, both systems are based on the public good, at least not maybe in the founding documents of the U.S., but kind of where we are now, everything's about the public good. And good, as I've said before, good is a value judgment. There's no such thing as being intrinsically good or not. There's no universe. You can't like nothing is good or not good apart from a valuer and a purpose, right? The, the word good, if you're going to use it properly, philosophically, it means it, there's a valuer. Someone's saying it's good for whom, for what purpose? Who says it's good for what purpose? Who values it? It requires a valuer. There's no, there's no intrinsic universe that values a thing. There's no value to a thing intrinsically. Values require valuers and if we're talking about values to humans they require human valuers um I, you know classic example here is poison it's good to someone with cancer for the purpose of shrinking a tumor bad for most of us most of the time right even poison isn't intrinsically good or bad so good or bad bad are value judgments that are made by a valuer for a purpose in the case of the public good there's no proper value right and there, there can't be 
a proper value or except i guess you could have unanimous consent if literally everyone agrees to do something then you could say it's public good but then who needs the state force isn't necessary we're all just going to do it right so absent that public good the valuer that decides what's in the public good is some third party it has to be it has to be which is either a majority that's the third party like the 51 percent, or a dictator or some representative the, and the purpose is determined by that third party right which is part of the reason why government actions don't always make sense there's like you end up with this quagmire of, of bloated bureaucracy and that leads to vague and ambiguous and, and unstable purpose because everyone's kind of i think this is the purpose right there's too many people involved in the process of determining what's the value and what's the purpose you know what does public good mean too many people get to so you, that's why you end up with administrations or uh an administrative state that sometimes doesn't seem consistent but anyway with respect to those of us in the u.s commitment to reason and individual sovereignty does not require preserving the configuration of the entire united states politically it does not require saving washington dc thankfully or convincing people in berkeley which probably won't happen in 100 years but enlightenment ideas are like seeds they they, they need fertile soil to grow they're not going to grow well on your ranch with your nuclear family. I mean, they'll grow there, but they're very limited, right? The United States nurtured those Enlightenment ideas, at least partially, and they went from a weak, pathetic colony to a world superpower more than capable of defending itself. Right? And actually now it's probably more than capable of meddling all around the globe, right? I would call it the largest empire in the history of mankind. Right? Not in terms of landmass, but uh, let's just take a look. The U.S., by the way, went a couple hundred years, crappy colony, crappy colony, bunch of backwater, slack dog crap, I and mean, that's how we were viewed, right? Crappy little colony. The U.S. dollars, the world reserve currency, we're the largest government, uh, you know, if you look at expenditures by far. Um, I think China and Russia have a slightly larger standing army. Um, but I think we have two million, they've got somewhere around three, but we have the largest military budget by far. We're not about throwing bodies at the problem, we're about throwing tech and money. There's 754 military bases in 80 countries for the US. Just about the only thing we don't have is a death star, right? So whatever your assessment of the situation is, the US achieved this level of power by all they did was kind of sort of half-heartedly they implemented a political system kind of based on preserving individual sovereignty and they didn't do a great job that's all they did and they went from crap to where we are now that's pretty good and we those of us who understand the implementation errors that the founding fathers made we can do better now we can do better i'm not saying we can be perfect but we can do better we can build a political system focused on preserving individual rights combined with a culture of reason, with human flourishing as the standard, that's an unstoppable force. It provides a really rich soil for the enlightenment seeds of reason-based epistemology and ethics of individual sovereignty and all their corollaries, right? Property rights, free speech, scientific method, right? Self-defense, free markets. It provides rich soil for the fruits of all that stuff to grow. That's how you get scientific progress, technological progress, explosions of art and music, the advancements that you read about in science, fiction novels, right? I mean, or in, you know, remember uh, Back to the Future? Always, I was always hoping there would be hoverboards by now, but like hoverboards and cancer cures and space travel and anti-aging and whatever, like all that stuff comes 
when you implement these ideas and you like and you let you let a large number of people be politically free you give them the liberty you protect their individual rights you give them property rights you let them do their thing the united states wasn't designed in 1776 but by like i know we'll plan this is how we'll plan to have the largest military in 200 years like that's not wasn't a thing they just this is this is how this is how cell phones will work let's have a central planner to invent cell phones that's not how it worked and if you're interested in preserving or maybe the better word is recapturing freedom uh and preserving or renormalizing concepts like individual sovereignty if you actually want to win against the enemies of the enlightenment which i do that's why i'm doing this show and why i'm involved in unsafe space If you want to win against the enemies, enemies like progressives, or you know, or the Great Reset, or socialists, or wokies, or leftists, it doesn't matter what you call them, even populists, they're all forms of collectivism as opposed to individualism. The nuances of any particular collectivist system don't really matter in the long run, right? The summary that the TLDR on collectivist ethics is that it's all manifestations of some variant of it's for the public good, all of it, all of it. So if you actually want to win, like I do, we need an entire society, not small communities of self-sufficient farmers. And we don't need a bunch of Luddites who are one broken refrigerator against, you know, away from subsistence farming, right? We need a vibrant, rich, wealthy, thriving, abundant, populous, technologically advanced society. One that's actually capable of preserving, extending, and defending individualism. So the reason I'm saying this is <laughs> I'll fight you naked says, oh, we have a Death Star. Yeah, I haven't had my clearance in a while, so I don't remember one, but maybe now. Uh, look, I think we need to fundamentally embrace technology, and I see a lot of people in the liberty community, a lot of them do embrace technology, but a lot of them are like, they reject it, right? And it, I'm not saying that we don't reject some applications of technology if the purpose is evil, but we need to look at science and technology as opportunities for expanding human flourishing, for making us more efficient, more productive, increasing our long-term happiness. We need to fundamentally embrace that, you know, city life as well as rural life is all, it's all good, it's necessary. We need people who want to live in the city. Everyone has preferences, right? And a lot of advances require a large number of people to work together physically and be there, right? Um, we need a culture that explicitly embraces individualism and, it, and is immune to collectivist ideology in the same way that people see the danger of cancer or, or anything else. They see smoking as a danger. I guess people see that mostly now, right? They need to see collectivist ideology as a danger, as is death, which is what it is. And by the way, I'm saying collectivism, not community. I've talked about this before. You'll find it if you don't understand the difference, but community is voluntary. It's voluntary. It's voluntary and vital. It's not collectivist. Right? But if we have a society like that, a decaying Rome, even one as large as the US, can't hold a candle to that society. And I'm not saying we transform the entire US into that, but it can't be just our towns. It's got to be the size of several states, right? I don't know. There's, if I had to guess, there's probably 10, 11 million, uh, you know libertarian leaning kind of people if you look at like 
think Gary Johnson got 3.3% of the vote in the election and, you know, in, in 2016 or whatever. So, okay, so that's, you know, bigger than Portugal. And I'm not, you know, not all libertarians are the same. And you know, there's some conservatives that are uh, lean towards individual rights and that kind of stuff. But we have enough people to be a, a decent size entity, right? A vibrant society doing stuff. And there's people that are always asking, like, what states to move to to do this? Like, should we be Florida? There's a free state project in New Hampshire. You know, there's Texas, Wyoming, Idaho, Nevada, right? Uh, I still don't think any of these are the obvious choice. I mean, I will make my own choice to do it, but we're all going to make our own choice. So we're all going to make different choices. Not all of us, but there'll be several different choices. And it may, you know, the truth is it may just be too early to tell where a freedom-minded culture can actually congeal, right? I used to think Texas was a great idea. I'm not so sure because uh, it's on the verge already of being kind of blue and the red that is in Texas tends to be more conservative and less liberty minded per se, but there's some, you know, there's a rebellious culture there too. So who knows, right? Uh, I wouldn't have said, I, honestly, six years ago, I wouldn't have said Florida's the place, but now we're looking at Florida going, I don't know, Florida looks interesting, right? So maybe we don't know. But right now at this moment in history, we have a Supreme Court that's friendly to the idea of state sovereignty. Thankfully, they seem to be. Um, and so in terms of political action, now is the time for us to focus on you know, getting the federal government to relinquish power to states, which is mostly the Supreme Court, so we can't do too much, but also Congress. And maybe focus on your state, the states that you think is it's going to be good. Get there. Focus on that. Get that state to flex its muscles. Flex its muscles. Pick a, pick a federal law and get that state to defy it, to challenge that law, or support someone who's doing that. Because we need to find states that have the will and ability to defy the federal government in the direction of liberty, right? Not in the like direction of socialism. California is good at that, right? But we need to normalize the defiance of the feds at a state level, right? So if you're, you know, if you're like me, if you're stuck in like California or New York or somewhere, I think political action in that state is a waste of your time. So maybe until we move, pick a target state and maybe help them. Um, but I think that's, I, maybe this is a simple point and you guys didn't need to hear it, but I needed to hear it, so I'm saying it. I don't, that's our goal. Our goal is not to buy farms together. Our goal is not to check out and buy farms together. It's not to build like Waco 2.0 without the crazy religion. Like, it's to build a vibrant, wealthy, technologically advanced community together. It's to build alternative tech, an entire alternative economy. It's to, it's to, it's to be more advanced than the intellectually primitive philosophy that's ruling DC right now. And from that, from, from that kind of a stronghold, if we had three, four states that were defying the federal government that were, that were moving towards liberty, from there we can fight the enemy of the enlightenment. That's enough, right? That's enough to fight. We can't fight it if we're moving to homesteads and, you know, churning butter. But we can if we're focusing on a few areas that can fight the federal government and embracing technology and embracing not just tech, but progress generally, actual progress. Um,
<laughs> Welcome, by the way. And your your friend Paul just uh, joins. He happened to become a member during this show. So, so welcome. Um, JB says marijuana is the go-to example of defying federal law. There's lots of these, right? I mean, um, there's sanctuary cities are a go-to example here. Not that that's a defiance that I like, but you know, there are there are plenty. Marijuana is a great one. I marijuana is one of those things that I can't get too excited about because I, while I think it's important, like I don't I don't think federal government should should be doing like I, I think it's wrong to be enforcing drug laws and the war on drugs is a failure all that stuff i also look at that i'm like really is that really the battle that we need to fight how about we refuse to pay taxes like how about we do something meaningful who the hell cares like, like if i never went another day in my life smoking a joint or having any pot like i don't care i'd much rather spend the rest of my life not paying taxes though um like if i'm going to focus somewhere um and i just a note by the way by the way your friend paul is right Legal weed is super expensive. That's because it's not none of it's actually legal. It's all been like the places that legalized it uh, were massive administrative states that like pulled it into their huge bureaucratic regulatory system. So here in California, I think a, a I think a majority of the weed that's consumed is still on the black market because it's so expensive. I don't know about it. Um, kind of bad timing for the taxes thing, says Don. Yeah, well, I mean, look, that's why I said I think they should be tarred and feathered. But I, look, I want to make there's a, there's a small subset I want. I, I, almost every time I talk about like, like we don't have to focus on the whole yes, we don't have to U.S. we don't have to save Washington, we have to you know focus on a few areas and build a society there. There's always a few like virtue signaling blowhards that say something to the effect of you're giving up by not fighting for the entire US, right? These are usually people who haven't sacrificed their career and wealth to focus on promoting enlightenment values, I'll point out. Uh, like I have, uh, you know, but I've said things like, we need to make a tactical retreat to certain states and kind of fortify and group, and, and their response is like, you're a coward, giving up isn't the answer. Um, and I have one basic response to those kind of arguments, I just want to treat them all as a whole. Uh, bravado is not a substitute for brains, and you're a moron. That's what your argument is. I'm not interested in being a swaggering moron. I don't want to die in a blaze of glory, neither literally nor metaphorically. That's not my goal. Right? What was the there's a I don't know if it's apocryphal, but I don't think it is. There was a story like that during the Meiji Restoration, there was at the um towards the end of the, the Satsuma Rebellion, the, the the samurais that were left like ran at the bullets. Because <laughs> they're like, ah, we're like, and um they died. Uh, they did. They did go out in the blaze of glory. Like that's not what I want. My goal is to win. It's for the ideas to win. Right. Um. What's the Sun Tzu quote? Uh. You'll basically you'll win if you know when to fight and when not to fight or something. Right. Uh. If you think the culture war is is over who controls the ideology of Washington D.C., then you and I are not fighting the same battle. And by the way you will lose in the in the short and medium term at least i mean i don't know what 300 years maybe but my goal which i think is shared by most of the people in this community is for the ideas to win and the only reason that any part of america even plays a part in that there's two reasons i guess one is i live here that's kind of a minor reason because i live in california so i don't know if that counts as america uh, but the second reason 
This is the place in the world with the highest concentration of liberty-minded people. In other words, this is where the troops are. This is, these are the people that need to be defended. These are the people who can do the defending, right? More people here understand, if not intellectually, because I, I think a lot don't understand intellectually, but intuitively people get the value of liberty in a way that if you, know, you go to Japan, they don't get, right? Or even, even go to Europe, they don't get. They don't, you know, France can talk about liberté all the time, but they don't have a fundamental visceral understanding of it the way, you know, an average person in middle of Oklahoma does, right? So that's the reason that I want to do it here. But, you know, if Cuba had, you know, if Cuba had suddenly evolved into a model of individual rights after Castro, and, and now it was the crucible of the Enlightenment 2.0 movement, I'd advocate moving to Cuba, absolutely. Right? Just like so many free people around the globe moved to America over the past 200 years, it was the best. Right? And if I advocated moving to Cuba, you know, I'd do my best to convince people elsewhere to adopt the awesome individualism in Cuba, which is the key to their inevitable success. Uh, I don't think Cuba is likely to do that, but I'm just making a point, right? Like, it doesn't, I don't care where on the globe, it just so happens that in America, this is the best place. We get the best. We still have the best culture. It's a subculture, but we still have it. And there still is a remnant of that American spirit, uh, that American spirit a lot. So my summary on this is, uh, <laughs> by the way, your friend Paul just gave the super chat. I got to read it. Uh, thank you. This is the, he modernized Sun Tzu for us all. Uh, his modernization is you got to know when to hold them and you got to know when to fold them. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, if you want to be a slack-jawed idiot and go out in a place of glory, put on your own time. I don't know. That's what I want. Uh, I have kids, right? I, I, I want to win for them. Um, and myself. Anyway, the summary here is look, don't check out and don't give up on science and technology. Don't think that the Randy Weaver plan is the smart move. Embrace the complexity of modern culture, embrace the technology, and focus on building a parallel economy, building a community of like-minded people um, that I think we often conflate because the last time people wrote about it, talked about individualism and individual liberty and individual rights, it was like, you know, in the 18th century. This is like, we kind of have this mindset, like, it's an old thing, so we have to have like an old lifestyle to talk about it. Like, there's something quaint about it, and that's... That's kind of cool. It doesn't have to be quaint. It can be Star Trek level technology talking about individualism and 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 individual rights and like that. Because it leads to that. That's what leads to that. Um, and I also do want to make a note, especially because we just read uh, Alex Epstein's book, Fossil Future, which if you haven't read it, I'm going to recommend again. You can go watch the uh, book club video we did on Sunday of it. But uh, don't confuse science and tech, which is what I'm talking about, with our knowledge system, which, which is a term that I got from Alex in Fossil Future. Uh, and I love the term, and it's a good, uh, it's a good descriptor. Right, so in, in, the, in the primitive world, if you, or if you want just a primitive understanding of reality, you can just observe reality, use your basic reasoning skills to see some cause and effect, uh, you know, my kid right now is, she's noticing like, hey, if I drop it, it falls. You don't need, <laughs> you don't need a PhD for that. She'll figure that out. She has figured that out. Like, got it. Drop, fall. 
that's like a very low resolution understanding of gravity, right? If you want to understand more deeply, then you need more than just basic reasoning skills. You probably need a scientific method, careful observation and analysis. Maybe you you figure out, uh, you know, the the rate at which acceleration uh, happens when things are falling towards the Earth. Maybe you you figure out f equals m a, right? You do some some Newton, but Newton, you know, Newton invented one of the inventors of calculus, right? So that takes a little bit more deep reasoning skills and some time scientific work but mod the modern world is way more complex than that and we rely on a lot of hyper specialization it's like super super it's it's impossible for one person to even understand relatively simple simple things and actually i'm gonna this will be fun i'm gonna play a clip i'm gonna play a clip from uh it's a couple minutes it's milton friedman talking about um a an article called I Pencil by Leonard Reed. And he's using this example to, to talk about the values of the price mechanism in the free market. Um, but I think it's also an example of how much hidden complexity we take for granted. So let's just watch this clip for a second. I know no better way to bring this out than by a very simple example that I owe to an old friend of mine, Leonard Reed, who once wrote a little article called I the Pencil. This is the only prop I have for this TV show. As you can see, it's a plain yellow pencil. Said Leonard Reed in his article, you know, it's a funny thing, he said, there's nobody in the world who knows how to make a pencil. Now that seems like a silly thing to say. Isn't it? This is just the most obvious thing. It's only a piece of wood with a, something black in the middle and a little red tip at the end. What do you mean nobody knows how to make a pencil? Well, suppose you were to start to set out to make a pencil. First of all, you have to get some wood, don't you? Where do you get the wood? You have to go to the Pacific Northwest, probably, and cut down some trees. How do you cut down some trees? You have to have some saws to cut it with. Where do you get the saws? You have to have some steel. Where do you get the steel? You have to have a steel mill. In order to have the steel mill, you have to get the iron ore, and you can add all the rest. So in order to know how to make a pencil, you would have to know everything there is to know about how to start from iron ore and coal and get iron and convert it into saws and cut down trees. But that's only the beginning. This black stuff in the middle that we call lead isn't lead. It's graphite, I think. I'm not absolutely sure. And I am told it comes from some mines in South America. So in order to get that black stuff in between, you would have to take a trip down to South America and know all about how to extract graphite from the mines in South America. Now this little red tip at the top, that's rubber. Where does it come from? Well, the major source of natural rubber is Malaya. That's quite another distance. And I don't know how many of you know that the rubber tree was not native to Malaysia. It was originally imported into Malaysia by private enterprises trying to make some money, and they transplanted it from somewhere in South America. I think it was Brazil, but I don't guarantee that. And they brought it over into Malaysia and established the, pla the plantations there and got this rubber. So somehow or other, in order to make a pencil, you'd have to know about the rubber. Now there's a little brass tip around here, and I've run out of my own technological knowledge. I don't have the slightest idea where that comes from, though there are probably people in the audience who could tell us. Nobody knows how to make a pencil. But the miracle of this pencil isn't that nobody knows how to make it. 
the miracle of the pencil is how did it get made? Who told that fellow over in Malaya to tap his tree and send a little bit of rubber over here to put at the end of this pencil so I could have a pencil in my hand? So look, like I said, um, this is also an example. He's talking about uh, the price mechanism for the free market, but this is also an example of how much we there's hidden complexity there is in everything, and how much we actually actually rely on other people and their expertise and their labor and and their their the scientific knowledge and the technological knowledge. I mean, I don't, does anyone in chat know how to uh, do? You know how to mine iron and smelt it and make steel? I guess you need copper for steel as well. Do you know how to do that efficiently at all? Like if you had to make, could, could you make a steel building? I, I, I don't even, I could like maybe, I could maybe make some steel from iron and copper, but I'm not sure I could even do that. I couldn't get the iron and copper. I don't know how to, I certainly couldn't make enough to make a building. Um, and that's just a pencil, right? His example is just the pencil. And it one, when it comes to something as complex as, for example, the climate and energy production, which is discussed in, in Alex's book, or vaccines or, or anything like that, we don't have a direct understanding of the science. We rely on this chain of information, which, which Alex uh, Epstein is calling knowledge system in, in, in fossil future. And uh, I showed this, this slide during... Uh, during the book club, but I'm going to show it again because I want to. I want to just walk. I just want to walk through it for, for people who want to understand what I'm talking about. So there's reality at the top here, right? There's this, you know, thing that we'll never really fully understand. And for simple things, for simple understanding, we can maybe directly observe it. You can look up and see that the sun is there. And actually, when I was uh, my my oldest daughter was really young i was i did a lot of direct observation experiments with her where i was like well look you know uh she went outside every hour for for a day for example and she she had a picture of our backyard and she drew on it where the sun was every hour and she could like you know she could observe the sun moves and actually uh when people say well science is always changing blah 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 and they say we used to think the sun revolved around the earth the sun does revolve around the earth at a certain level of granularity. If you're just a farmer and you're never going to move from the spot you are, that's a fine model for real. It does, does revolve around the earth as far as you're concerned. Like that's the granularity that you need. You need more granularity if you're going to start putting satellites up. But like it's the granularity that changes, not the fact like even today, if you go outside, you'll see that it rises in the east and sets in the west and it pretty much revolves around you. Like that's. That's what happens. Um, so it's that grand. So you can you can recognize low resolution stuff directly, but when it's really complex, we've got this knowledge system, and this is the knowledge system that Alex talks about. You've got reality, and you've got researchers who perform experiments or whatever, and, and directly observe reality. Now there can be biases there uh, in terms of what gets funded, and if they're looking for particular results, uh, they'll find them. That happens. Uh, quite a lot. There's a lot of, you know, if you know you have to come to certain conclusions, you'll certainly word things uh, a different way. I just I just saw someone talking today about a, a study about heat-related deaths and they're on the, the rise and blah, blah, blah. And the guy was saying, well, if this, if this paper were written objectively, it would say, well, but cold-related deaths 
for the same reason that heat-related deaths are on the rise, cold-related deaths are on the decline, and actually cold-related deaths are uh, much more common, and so we're actually net negative on death. Yay! Like So there's, there's different ways to write the same, you know, you, you learn something, there's different ways to characterize it. So that can happen even at the research level. Then you have people who take all the these expert papers and all the the research and they synthesize it they 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 put it together and say okay this is this paints the overall picture of where the state of technology today right or in this particular field and then they disseminate it they they have spokespeople that go out and talk about it and uh they have new york times for its articles and the atlantic for its articles and they they disseminate this information to us and they and then they have evaluators also you you also have evaluators in in you know the new york times or or whatever and you have them saying well that's what this means and that's often what happens translates into political action right so when someone says uh you know well let's use climate change as an example someone will say well uh you need to believe the science and if you don't think that we should have a law reduce like penalizing co2 emissions if we don't think we should try and aim for net zero CO2 emissions by 2050, you're a climate change denier. Well, uh, what they're doing is they're mistaking science for the knowledge system and the evaluation that the knowledge system is providing. And those are two different things. Um, so I'm not suggesting that we value, we, I'm not suggesting that we don't criticize the knowledge system, right? Um, and you know, it's important to recognize those biases and, and hidden premises and errors and sometimes outright agendas in that knowledge system. It's crucial that we don't confuse that knowledge system with science and technology fundamentally, because science is how we discover truths about the world and technology properly utilized is how we make our lives better. Those are great things. The knowledge system can have a lot of problems by the time that information filters down and we're told, uh, you know, AOC stands up and says there's here's a conclusion the oceans are going to boil like well that's a failure of the knowledge it's not a failure of science right um and the same can be true for other things i'm sure a lot of people are thinking about vaccines or, or at least covid vaccine you hear about this all right so that was kind of a rant but uh it's important to me to really push back on the, the kind of luddite idea of you know fighting for individualism by being a Luddite and saying like it's fine to be against big tech but not against tech as such. It's fine to be against the knowledge system but not knowledge as such, not science as such. Those are great things and they're our things, they're ours in the sense that we're the ones that have the the philosophical soil that's that's required for those things to flourish. Right, the, the collectivists, the collectivists don't end up with awesome science and cures to cancer without they, they don't end up with that at all. They don't end up with that. Individualists do. Liberty creates that. Freedom creates that. You know, Milton Friedman's example of the pencil, like the market, the market creates that, not central planners. So that was my only real point on that. Okay, it's a long point. And maybe a lot of you are like, I already knew that. I don't need to be told that. So, and that's why, by the way, why I asked how many people work in tech. I'm just curious. Uh, I'm curious if, like, so, the, so far this poll here in chat says that 21% of you work in tech. So good. So you should get this already. And the 79% don't don't hate on them for working in tech. It's good to do. Okay. 
we should build our alternate tech, which maybe is a conversation for uh, <laughs> for another day. All right. I said I want to talk about intuition just for a moment because I've uh, I've seen some comments about it, which uh, I want to help clarify people's thinking on. If I had to summarize what kind of some of what I've been hearing is, and I hear this a lot, I hear something to the effect of, my intuition is sometimes right, therefore reason, reason isn't the only way of knowing. Intuition is a perfectly good way of knowing, and you can't just rely on reason. Um, in a similar vein, you hear people be like, well, sometimes emotions or emotions matter too. You can't just have reason. Emotions are, you know, there's emotional knowledge. Like there's, there's that kind of like pushback as if reason is in opposition to those things. And it's the enemies of reason who have put reason in this position or tried to convince you that reason is opposed to those things, and it is not, and I want to explain that. Um, reason is not the only way of gaining information, but it is the only way of knowing. And there's a distinction there uh, that I'd like to elaborate on. Knowing is epistemological. Epistemology is like, how do we know what we know? It's the this, this study of knowledge, right? It's the theory of knowledge, right? How do we know what we know? Now, everything, we're human beings, uh, other than uh, Gene Ellis and Chat, we're all flawed, right? Everything about our sense data is faulty. All five senses are faulty. Our intuition is faulty. Everything's faulty. Because we're not omniscient. We're not omniscient beings. I'm not picking on Jean. I like Jean. That's why I'm saying that about her. Uh, we're not omniscient. Everything about our sense data is faulty. Everything is faulty. Now, bad philosophers, by the way, use this to say, see, you can't know anything. Put that aside. These are people who just want to destroy humans and humanity, right? If we were omniscient, we wouldn't need reason. We'd just know. Narcissists don't think they need reason because they just know they're right, right? But because our acquisition of, of knowledge is imperfect, because how we get this information is, is imperfect, how we synthesize it is imperfect, because it's prone to error, we need a process for checking that our conclusions actually correspond to reality. We need some way of checking that, right? If you're, um, if you're an engineer, think about it as like a feedback loop. You need... You need feedback so you know, like, how close am I to reality here? I need to adjust. And if you don't have that feedback loop, you're in the you're dark. You're in the you're in the dark. You're blind. We need a process for checking our conclusions, and that's what reason is. Reason is simply a process for verifying correspondence to reality. Right? It's the art the art of non-contradictory identification. That's what it's called. Which is another way of saying it's the art of identifying what's actually true. Right? Reason does not deny the fact that humans have emotions, that humans have intuition, just the same as emotions in my book. It's a feeling. Intuition's a feeling rather than an argument, right? Humans have those things. That's a fact. And those things are important to us. In fact, they're driving factors. Emotions are ultimately our motivation, right? You could be, you can reason your way into being a billionaire, but it doesn't matter if you're miserable because that's like, 
It's your it's emotional motivation that matters. You can you can get the girl, but it doesn't matter if you don't feel anything for the girl. If it's the wrong girl, like getting the girl needs to be motivated by which girl. Who do you feel like you need to need to go be with, right? Like emotions are your motivating factor. So reason doesn't deny that emotions exist or that they're important. But it does deny that emotion and intuition are reliable sources of information about external reality. In other words, saying you feel a certain way does not mean you're correct. The only reliable thing about emotions and intuition are that they're telling you something true and accurate about your internal state. That's what they're telling you, right? And that might be valuable. Sometimes that's all you have to go on. There are situations in life where all the only information you really have is information about your internal state, and that's what you got to use to make a decision, right? And usually that's because, I mean, the examples I can think of is that's because of time constraints, right? So I'll give two examples. One will be non-life and death. Uh, I think we've probably all done this, although maybe I'm projecting, so maybe only I do have ever done this, but let's say you're driving on the freeway, you're kind of not paying much attention, maybe you're zoning out or thinking of a brilliant philosophical argument, I'm sure. Uh, and uh, suddenly you notice, like, there's an exit that you're approaching. And you don't have time to think about, like, oh, wait, where was I going? And how do I get there? And is this the right exit that I should take or not? You don't have time to make that decision. you got to, like, get off the exit or stay on. You, have to make a, you just have to make a decision. And you have a feeling. You have intuition about whether you should get off the freeway or stay on. Like, that's all it is. You don't, you don't like, think through it because you don't have time. Right? So you follow your intuition. Presumably, because it's all you've got in that moment. That's all you got. But no matter which decision you make after following your intuition, reason dictates that you take the time afterward to think about whether that was the right decision and whether you need to turn around or not. Right? So, intuition is valuable. And actually, your intuition can often be right in situations like this, especially if you're going someplace that you go often. Right? Your intuition will just, like, yeah, like, get off of the segments of the egg. Or whatever. Uh, a life and death example, which I'm lifting, I, I'm, I might not be doing it exactly because it's been years since I read this book, but I'm lifting from Gift of Fear by Gavin DeBecker. Uh, you know, you're walking down the street, you see a guy walking towards you, and you feel uneasy about it. You feel fear. Now, this time constraint, you can't, you can't stop and whip out a spreadsheet and evaluate like. What are the things that, what are the signs that he might be a predator? And what are the things, like, you can't, you don't have time to do an analysis rationally. You got a feeling. What do you do? Do you cross the street? Or do you keep walking towards the guy? Now, on the one hand, if you cross the street and he's just a regular nice guy, you might feel like a bit of a jerk. That's the downside. On the other hand, if you don't cross the street and he's a thug who is planning on murdering you and stashing your body in the alley, the consequences are catastrophic. So Gavin DeBecker would say, cross the effing street and sort it out later. And if that makes you, I think he was like, if that makes you a bitch, then it makes you a bitch. Like, I think he was talking to women, right? Like, fine, cross the street, follow your intuition, because it's important in this case. The consequences of not following it are catastrophic. Um, so and the consequences of following it and being wrong are, are minor, being wrong are minor. So, so intuition I think in, intuition is, I mean, it's its similar to animal instincts. It, I think it operates much faster, it does operate much faster than reason. It's able to integrate a lot of sense data, but also your experiences and 
and you know context and sum them up really quickly, but it gives you a really low resolution piece of information, and that is this doesn't feel right. That's that's what you get. That's the information you get, and that kind of low resolution piece of information is less reliable, right? Uh, the reason it doesn't feel right could be a result of lots of relevant data that you were unable to process, you know, rationally quickly, but your subconscious could do it really quickly. Like, oh, the time of day, it's getting, it's getting this dark, or it's two in the morning, and the emptiness of the streets, there's no one around, there's not cameras. The way this guy's walking looks weird, he seems to be looking away, maybe he's got a weapon, it looks like maybe he, there's a, you know, a bulge where a gun would be, or, uh, you know, you, you're kind of vaguely aware that there was a there was a crime in this area, or maybe you've had past experiences with predators, whatever. There could be a lot of valid reasons that added up to like, you don't feel, doesn't feel right. And that's, that's your intuition. You know, that's when it's right, providing relevant data. It could be that the data that your intuition is using to give you that feeling is not the stuff super relevant to the situation, right? It could be that he reminds you of a character in a scary movie that you just watched, or a friend just showed you some kind of scary story and you're on the edge or traumatized by a kid, by someone who's wearing a sweatshirt like his, or whatever. like it could be a whole bunch of reasons that just don't, that's why you feel weird and eh, your intuition's wrong. It happens, right? And obviously in this case, the stakes are much higher uh, than taking the wrong exit on the freeway. So it's best to play it safe in, in situations like that and follow your intuition when it comes to, when it comes to danger. Um, I think you see a lot of, I think it's our animals, I think I've seen a lot of animals who are like afraid of snake-shaped objects, right? It was like, ah, well, I mean, and even if, you know, maybe later they figure out that it's not a snake, but like initially, I think a lot of humans are also initially like, ah, you know, it's a snake-shaped object, but it's just a hose, right? Um, that's your, you know, that's your intuition kicking in, like, yeah, it's bad. And then you can use your reason and be like, oh, no, that's that's a hose, that's not a snake, right? Um, so being rational does not mean denying any value of your intuition, denying emotions, recognizing that, you know, being rational means that, that you, you recognize that your emotions or your intuition are faulty. In other words, they're not reliable indicators of external reality. And you commit to reason as being the, I was going to say best, but really the only method for determining reality correspondence. That's the method you use for making decisions when you have time to evaluate them. And that's the method you use for making knowledge claims to other people about things because your intuition is not an argument, right? And obviously there are decisions in your life for which the emotions themselves are relevant. These are personal decisions. Who should you marry? Obviously the feelings about them are important, but if you're rational, the feelings aren't the only consideration, even for something like who should you marry, right? Because you might feel, you know, a lot of love for someone and you might feel effusive toward them. But if you sit down rationally and you realize, well, their character assessment's kind of flawed and we don't have a lot of shared values and our life goals are different, like probably not a good candidate for marriage, regardless of how you feel, right? So even something like marriage takes feelings into account, but shouldn't only be based on feelings, uh, contrary to Disney. Okay, so that's what I want to say about intuition and... Uh, Reason. I'll fight you naked. Upset that I called them flawed. Well, you in particular, buddy. Uh, I'm telling you what. Okay. <laughs> exiting. Gene says exiting from the wrong lane can be a life and death matter. 
Could be. I'll fight you naked. Says, what if it's racist across the street? Well, racists are dead. Those are your choices. Uh, and everything's racist now, so obviously it's racist across the street. Um, I want to start doing something where uh, we work on arguments together, right? Like, I, I want to start doing a thing where you guys give me arguments that you're having trouble refuting, or maybe arguments that you want to make that you're having trouble making, and we kind of work on we work on them together. I mean, I, I take a stab at it if I can't do it, someone else does it, but um, I just I just asked about this today on Discord, and so uh, I don't have a litany of, of topics there. But there is a there was one thing people talked about, um, and that was this isn't really a specific argument, uh, but a couple of people wanted to go over the rhetorical triangle, which is this. Uh, um, rhetorical appeals, a set of rhetorical appeals that were identified by Aristotle. And the question was like, you know, let's talk about like logos, pathos, and ethos. And I'm not going to, it's late already. I'm not going to go too deep on this, but um, these are kind of methods of art, uh, methods of convincing people, think of it that way. They're not methods of logical arguments, methods of convincing other people. This is rhetoric, not logic, right? So the, the first is logos, that is like fact, logic, statistics, that kind of stuff. It's people that way. Uh, the second is pathos. Um, and that's kind of, you can think about that as emotional manipulation, right? When you watch a drug company ad and they show uh, barefoot people dancing and smiling on a beach while a lawyer is like, you know, this drug man falls down, like side effects man food, you know, whatever, horrible stuff. But then the music is playing and there's a couple like holding hands on the beach and smiling like that's emotional manipulation. They're trying to make you feel good about it. Similarly, the leftists on a lot of climate change stuff, it's apocalyptic. Right? It's like, oh, my God, the oceans are going to boil. We're all going to die. Right. Like that's fear. It's fear. mongering. It's also a form of pathos. It's emotional. Um, and the other. Side of that triangle is ethos. Um, which you would think is ethics because that's what it means in, in Greek, but it's not ethics. Uh, it's really the credibility of the speaker. Um, you know, are you like, it's a speaker viewed as an expert and really incredible. And um, along these lines, oh, by the way, Jean Ellis just made a good comment. I just want to say, she says reading body language is life-saving. It can be, um, and that's a way to train your intuition better because sometimes uh, if you, if you can consciously learn and become an expert in a particular thing that does seep into your subconscious and then your intuition, um, is more likely to be correct in making assessments of that nature because it's something that you've got experience with in that training. Um, so yeah, I'm not good at body language, but perhaps I should be. Okay. Uh, so I'm gonna, I don't think she minds if I quote her a little bit. So Coley says to me, someone in our community, she says, in theory, I believe I understand what, what kind of argument goes where. She's talking about the difference between logos, pathos, and ethos. In theory, I understand, I believe I understand what kind of argument goes where, but in practice, it's actually a bit difficult to make a single style of argument without including another and also be convincing. <laughs> That's the case. She says, I think ethos is the hardest part to take down for me. 
And then she says, as far as I can tell, the trick with ethos is that it relies on shared values, or else it's not likely to work. Logos and pathos are easier to employ, but only for the type of person you're talking to. Try pathos with a logos person, no dice, and vice versa. Not that people are pure like that, but people do tend to lean. Okay, I've got a general response here to this. Again, I'm not going to get too deep because it's not like a specific argument we're going in here to here. But uh, I think first and most important, um, I am a firm believer that you need to have actually a sound argument before you start. You need to have a sound, like just based on logos, right? You need to have a sound rational argument. Um, the other two sides of that triangle are really just tactics to use to convince people. But I think you're risking performing a great disservice and evil in the world if you employ the other tactics without first making sure you have a firm, actual, logical argument available. So start with that. I don't mean lead with that when you're talking to someone, but like make sure you have that first. But obviously, much to my chagrin, most people aren't rational enough to hear pure logos arguments and be convinced. Some are. Some are. Um, and and actually, I I think that that should be a personal goal of all of ours, right? Commitment to the process of reason as opposed to the emotional attachment attachment to a conclusion. Um, and this is some, I mean, <laughs> maybe I'm going to sound like I'm being an ass and tuning my own horn. I'm pretty good at this compared to most people I know. And only because uh, I had to do this 20 something years ago and, and it was really gut wrenching. Um, I made a decision about religion that was really gut-wrenching because I didn't want to give it up. Um, but I was convinced logically that I needed to. And um, that was really, really hard. And, and that, that was just really, really hard. I hated it. Um, and it made me really uncomfortable. Uh, but it was a dedicate. I, I strive to have a dedication to that process. Obviously, I'm not perfect because I'm not gene health. But um, but I think that should be a goal. The goal is to, to let go of your commitment to the conclusion and commit to the process. But with most people, most people don't know, even like near there, right? Usually you need to break through an emotional commitment before people will be willing to hear an argument. Usually they've got an emotional commitment to some conclusion. Um, and before I talk about breaking through that emotional commitment, um using pathos there's a caveat here i don't enjoy doing that i know it's more effective generally i'm not particularly good at it probably should get better at it actually i don't enjoy talking to people who require a lot of work to burrow through their emotional barriers i find it tiresome i find it laborious and frankly i have much less respect for people who need too much of that i just don't like it uh it limits my effectiveness, frankly, um, but I'm not sure that I could be happy if <laughs> I, I think it would be I think it would challenge my commitment to making arguments and and pushing these ideas. If I was constantly trying to break through emotional barriers, it is tiring. It is tiring. There are people who love it. There's people who love emotional manipulation and they can like, they're like oh, I'll package this up and break through their emotional barrier first and then feed them some logic. That's awesome. Uh, man. I just don't like it. So, uh, so maybe I'm not the best person to give advice about that. That's what I'm saying. Um, but using pathos, especially to break through emotional barriers in order to get to that logos, is useful. 
Um, and one thing I want to say about uh, Coley's comment is there's no need to em employ these tactics in isolation, right? She was like, I, you know, it's hard to do one without the other. Why would you do that, right? I think of Logos as the main course. As I said, you need that. Uh, and I think the other two, you know, Logos and Pathos, or sorry, Pathos and Ethos are kind of dressing to get people to open up to the main course. So Pathos helps them open up to the possibility emotionally. Um, Logos actually makes the case. And then Ethos kind of reassures them that they're not being duped. There's this fear that they're being duped or they're going to change their mind. So they need to, they need to feel like you're trustworthy, right? So if you convince someone using only Pathos and Ethos, but you don't use logos, you only use pathos and ethos, I don't think you've actually convinced them of anything. Uh, I think you've changed the sounds of a non-thinking zombie and what they're, the sounds they're making, but that zombie doesn't actually understand what he's saying or why, so he's likely to just be swayed by the next person using emotional arguments and appeal to authority, right? Um, and we, I think we all know people like this. They agree with the last person with whom they spoke, right? Like, you know, that's, that, that's the opinion they have because they're just, they never really had that opinion in the first place. They were swayed by the pathos and the ethos, and there was no logos. There's no commitment to the argument or to the to the reasoning. So logos is the main course, um, which is why if your main course sucks, you ultimately fail, even if you temporarily win a zombie ally. So which is why I said you got to start with that. So um, the the other thing I want to say about Coley's. Uh, Comment. She says the trick with ethos is that it relies on shared values, and I'm going to say yes and no. Mostly yes. Uh, mostly yes. The no part is um, part of ethos is just trusting your integrity. It's, it's getting them to trust your integrity. So if you're caught saying one thing and doing another, that will undermine your credibility. If you're too salesy, use too much hyperbolic language, whatever, that will undermine your credibility. If you appear unprofessional or unreliable or discombobulated, that will undermine your credibility. So if you're you're caught in a logical fallacy, that will undermine your credibility. <laughs> so if you don't know uh, relevant information or the language you should use a particular thing, right, that will undermine your credibility. So uh, those are matters of ethos that don't really rely on shared values so much. I mean, I guess some you know baseline value of, of trustworthiness, but they don't really rely on shared values as much as you just being a trustworthy and credible source. Um, so that's the, that's the no part of that, uh, relying on shared values. The yes part, I think, is, is more important. Um, and I would say probably one of the biggest problems I run into when talking to anyone is the shared values. And it's not because other people have, like, have a clearly defined alternative value structure to mine. That's not the problem. It's because their value structure is more often than not vague and slapdash. And I'm going to read, I've read this before. I'm going to read it again because I don't think I can read this section enough. Um, I'm going to read, this is a section from Philosophy Who Needs It by Ayn Rand. Uh, by the way, if the name Ayn Rand makes you not want to listen, get the fuck over it. That's your emotional problem. Okay. So. She writes, now some of you may say, as many people do, oh, I never think in such abstract terms. I want to deal with concrete, particular, real-life problems. What do I need philosophy for? My answer is, in order to be able to deal with concrete, particular, real-life problems, i.e., in order to be able to live on Earth, 
You might claim, as most people do, that you've never been influenced by philosophy. I will ask you to check that claim. Have you ever thought or said the following? Don't be so sure. Nobody can be certain of anything. You got that notion from David Hume and many, many others, even though you might have never heard of him. Or this may be good in theory, but it doesn't work in practice. You got that from Plato. Or that was a rotten thing to do, but it's only human. Nobody's perfect in this world. I just said that. <laughs> you got that from Augustine. Or it may be true for you, but it's not true for me. You got it from William James. Or I couldn't help it. Nobody can help anything he does. You got that from Hegel. Or I can't prove it, but I feel that it's true. You got it from Kant. Or it's logical, but logic has nothing to do with reality. You got it from Kant. Or it's evil because it's selfish. You got it from Kant. Have you heard the modern activists say, act first, think afterward? They got that from John Dewey. Some people might answer, sure, I've said those things at different times, but I don't have to believe that stuff all the time. It may have been true yesterday, but that's not true today. They got that from Hegel. They might say, consistency is the hobgoblin of little minds. They got that from a very little mind, Emerson. They might say, but can't one compromise and borrow different ideas from different philosophies according to the expediency of the moment? They got it from Richard Nixon, who got it from William James. Now ask yourself, if you're not interested in abstract ideas, why do you and all men feel compelled to use them? The fact is that abstract ideas are conceptual integrations which consume an incalculable number of concretes, and that without abstract ideas, you would not be able to deal with concrete, particular, real-life problems. You would be in the position of a newborn infant to whom every object is a unique, unprecedented phenomenon. The difference between his mental state and yours lies in the number of conceptual integrations your mind has performed. You have no choice about the necessity to integrate your observations, your experiences, your knowledge into abstract ideas, i.e. into principles. Your only choice is whether these principles are true or false, whether they represent your conscious, rational convictions or a grab bag of notions snatched at random whose sources, validity, context, and consequences you do not know, notions which, more often than not, you would drop like a hot potato if you knew. We're living in a culture right now in which the majority of people that we come across operate on a value system built from a grab bag of notions snatched at random. That's the number one problem to combat by far when you're trying to convince people, I think. It would be much easier if everyone was like a devout Zoroastrian or something. At least they would have a clear belief. I assume Zoroastrians have a clear belief system. From but at least they'd have like a clear belief system. That was thought through like oh this is this is the thing right but that's why i personally find find one-on-one -on -one discussions uh i find that the first place you need the first thing you need to do first place you need to steer the conversation is to philosophical principles right uh, because otherwise they're constantly moving the goalposts when it comes to evaluating an argument and they're not even doing it on purpose usually it's just like they're just pulling from this random grab bag of contradictory crap right so Getting to philosophy is usually relatively easy. Um, you can usually just ask stuff like why or what's the goal and like keep going down that path and you get there. Um, you can also kind of bypass the questions and you can propose something. You can say like, hey, do you believe in the principle of self-ownership? Um, you could say individual sovereignty, but I mean, most people don't. You'd have to explain that. I think self-ownership they get, right? You could ask like, hey, if, like let's say the conversation about democracy, but is, is what's right dictated by the 51%? Like, is math ethics? 
and 51% enslave 49%, right? You can, you can kind of get them to start thinking about some of the fundamental concepts that they're pushing and, and whether those actually make sense. You can, you can ask about definitions like Socrates does. You can say, well, what's the public good? What do you mean by the public good? And a lot, you know, a lot of times people are like, who's the greatest good? Who's the greatest number? So I'm like, oh, okay, so slavery is okay. It's a small amount of people that are enslaved, right? Because that's good for the other people, right? Or, or you could be like, oh, good, good by whose standards? Who decides what's good for the greatest number? Like, get them to think about some of these concepts that they hold, some of these premises that they hold that are just crap. They just make no sense. They're crap that are evil, but they've just never thought about it. Public good sounds nice. A lot of people. A lot, even a lot of people who are liberty-minded will, will use the term public good. they like, oh, what's in the public good? It's in the public interest. They don't know. They haven't thought about it. They're not trying to be evil. They just haven't thought about it. So getting into that spot, I think, is the number one goal. Once you do that, actually, if you can just get them to question a, a really basic, this is the other cool thing about philosophy, if you can get them to, to question a really basic thing, if you can take someone who's like, democracy is great, and, and they can leave that conversation going, gee, democracy maybe does kind of, I don't know, gee, what, is, what are our ethics? Maybe maybe ethics and math aren't the same thing. And like, if you can get them questioning that, man, the implications that will have for their life for years, assuming they continue to kind of stew on that and think on it, I mean, it'll, you don't have to convince them of your particular thing right now. That will have massive consequences. Eventually, they'll come around whatever it was you were arguing about so that's all i want to say about this topic in general for now like this, you know these things but i'd love to start talking regularly about arguments you guys are having trouble refuting or arguments you'd like to make but you're having trouble articulating um so start bringing that stuff into chat or into discord or whatever i'll do my best to help out and like i said when i fail maybe uh maybe some of you people in the community can chime in and help strengthen arguments if i'm, if I'm failing at that so um None, none of your business says, what if you mumble incoherently and read whatever is written on the teleprompters? Well, actually, so that's, I, I mean, obviously that's funny, but also look how many people don't, look, look for how many people don't react negatively to that? How many people accept that? He's got to have that pathos is huge like the emotional manipulation is huge so that like literally a, a blithering idiot can be the person delivering the message and they're still like yeah that's that's amazing all right uh look sorry for the tech problems i don't know what to say i'll figure them out i guess um no idea what happened but an enormous thank you to those of you who continue to support us financially. You can join that at unsafespace.com. You get your name in the credits, eventually. <clears throat> oh, I get on to it. Uh, and in addition to this show, Dangerous Thoughts, your contribution supports um, a number of different series. Earlier today, we had uh, Rebel Civics with Keith Bissett. I think he talked about, I think he ranted about the FBI. I think actually he talked a lot about uh, Ruby Ridge because um, he was ranting about Ruby Ridge and Discord to me today. I think, I think that's what he ranted about. And, Rebel Civics uh, and the FBI generally. On Tuesdays, I think every other Tuesday, Alex um, Maselli does a show called 451 Degrees, which is about censorship. And then on Mondays, uh, we have 
narrative dissonance with Juliet Dillon and me as the co-host. That's a we bring on a panel of journalists or people from outside the mainstream to talk about news. Um, and then tomorrow, every Thursday evening, we have Token Minority Report hosted by Beverly and Alex, although I think Alex is out tomorrow, so it's just Beverly. Uh, that's more of a fun show. I think from what I can tell, you have to be younger because I don't get it. Uh, but a lot, of, a lot of younger people like it. It's more pop culture -y. You know, I just don't watch Marvel movies. Um, Gene Ellis says, Carter, most people rebel at the thought of thinking. It makes them angry in my experience. Yeah, because it's hard, right? So um, thinking is a, is a muscle. And so you get to that point when you're confronted with something that, that creates discomfort, right? You have fundamentally, you've got this choice. Do I confront that discomfort and think further about it, which is, uh, doesn't feel good? Or do I push it aside? Do I evade? And I think the more you evade, the weaker your ability to say yes to thinking becomes. And the more you say yes, oh, this is a hard thing I'll think about, I'll think about it, I'll think about it, the easier it is to be like, oh, yeah, this challenges all of my fundamental assumptions. I, I guess I better think about that. <laughs> Maybe I'll have to change them, right? That becomes easy the more you do it. But the more that you evade, uh, the more you're kind of stuck in evasion. I think it becomes really difficult and it becomes very painful. And so when you confront someone and you, you, you and especially if you try and force them, Right, and they, they're trying to evade, and they're trying to dodge left and right, and you're like, nope, not that way, nope, not that way, you can't evade this way, you gotta think about it. Man, they, that really, really, uh, it's really painful and they hate it. So yeah, that's why they get angry, I think. Um, G-Man says you're younger than me, Carter. Are you a are you a big fan of Token Minority Report, G-Man? Which is great if you are, I just, uh, yeah, I'm, you're younger, you're, I'm younger at heart? No, you're younger at heart. Um, okay. Oh, book club. We have two books that we have finally chosen coming up. September 25th, um, we couldn't find anyone who wanted to do the advocacy for this book because now we usually have an advocate and the advocate chooses the book and says we should all read it. Um, but Alex and I both agree that we should read the Satanic Verses by Salman Rushdie because, uh, as you may have known, he was, sh he was stabbed, uh, recently. I think he's going to lose an eye. He was like almost killed. Um, I don't know anything about him. All I know is that Muslims really, really hate him, uh, specifically for that book. And there's a fatwa issued against him years and years ago. I think it's $3 million uh, bounty on his head. Uh, and we're not supposed to read him, which is a great reason to read him. So I'm curious uh, as to what it will be like. Uh, so that's, that's the next book, September 25th. Go and grab a copy at Amazon or actually not Amazon, if you can avoid Amazon, but somewhere, grab a copy. Uh, and if you want to join us, read that. I have no idea what to expect. I have no idea what it's about other than that. Uh, apparently he is really hated <laughs> by the Islamic community. Uh, then the book after that is, um, the, the advocate is Juliet, who is my co-host on Narrative Dissonance. And that book is going to be Slaughterhouse Five by Kurt Vonnegut, which also I've never read. So I'm looking forward to that. So we're, we're switching to a couple fiction books the next ones because it, it's been we've been doing some some a lot of nonfiction. So we're doing these two these two next are fiction books. So if you like fiction, uh, the next couple months are good for you. So that's that's what's going on with book club. Thanks again, everyone. Have a great evening. Thanks for dealing with the thanks for dealing with the tech issues. Uh, don't know what to say. I will see you guys. 
uh, on Monday, and Beverly will see you here tomorrow for Token Murder Report. Have a good one. Thanks for sticking around until the end. If you're new to Unsafe Space, check out our deep content library that includes discussions with everyone from James Lindsay to Brett Weinstein. And please consider helping to fund our work by visiting unsafespace.com donate. You can find us on a variety of social media platforms, and you can find a community of like-minded individuals on our Unsafe Space Discord server which is open to financial supporters at any level. We hope to see you there. Warning, this is an unsafe space. Dangerous ideas have been detected. The content of this production is known by the state of California to cause unregulated ideation that may be harmful to bureaucrats. Association with the following individuals or tacos is strictly prohibited apropos of nothing i was just wondering how would you feel about another pandemic your president is in full control of his mental faculties if you think about it no one should be allowed to express opinions but don't think about it i mean that's not your job. Thinking has been scientifically proven to be less efficient than compliance. Science, scientific, and scientifically are registered trademarks of the World Economic Forum. Unauthorized use is prohibited. Computer voice Curtis, never mind, that last line is fake news. Please disregard it and return to your safe space immediately. There will be cake.